Okay, continuing on. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear, <coughs> excuse me, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull. They brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many child, the children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall cut off, be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Thanks, Rex. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we look at this part of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way that it points us to you and to the Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would give us understanding now as we look at it together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you do when you are helpless? I think I've only had a taste of this a few times. Uh, like in my second year of Bible college, I came down with a terrible chest infection. I was sick for seven weeks. Getting up in the morning and just having a shower would leave me exhausted for hours. My face looked gaunt, I'd wake up drenched in sweat every night and the coughing would leave my body aching. I was helpless. I couldn't change my situation, couldn't make myself better, couldn't even look after myself. 
uh, after weeks of back and forth with the doctor and getting tests, eventually I got the right antibiotics, but it took me months to recover. I remember how I reacted to my helplessness. I remember days where I got angry. Why won't I get better? Days when I despaired. Am I ever going to be well again? Days when I would cry out to God. Days when I would distract myself however I could. It was awful. And and I know that that is only a taste of what many of you with chronic illnesses endure. Only a taste of the difficulty of being caught in a difficult relationship or only a taste of getting a difficult diagnosis. What do you do when you are helpless? This week we're starting a new series through the book of 1 Samuel. After nine months in Romans, a New Testament letter, it's time for something completely different. It's time for an epic story. A story of kings and prophets, of epic battles and tender love scenes, of the mighty falling and underdogs raised up, a story of God's lavish grace shown to a people who have turned away from him. This is a story of God's people rejecting God as their king, but God graciously preparing them and preparing us for our true king. Not just any king, the ultimate king, Jesus. Spoiler alert, as James said earlier. So it's striking where this epic story starts. It starts with a simple, ordinary family in Israel. In fact, it starts with a simple, ordinary woman, Hannah, crying out to the Lord in her helplessness. But this morning, we better pay very close attention to Hannah. Not only because the Lord pays attention to her cries, but because it's only by paying attention to Hannah and how she responds to her helplessness that we are going to understand this whole epic book. And the idea that the author wants us to see is actually pretty simple. We're going to see that the Lord saves those who humbly cry out to him. So, let's get into Hannah's story. Let's listen closely to her crying under the curse. Verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. The author, he zooms us right in on Elkanah and his family. And we start with high hopes. He gives us Elkanah's genealogy. This must be a really important guy. And he reminds us a lot of the patriarchs, of Jacob who had two wives, Leah and Rachel, with their own fertility issues. Maybe Elkanah is the king that we should be looking for. Actually, this isn't really Elkanah's story. This is no king. This is an ordinary man with an ordinary family and their ordinary problems. The sadly ordinary problem of not being able to have children. And this is awful for Hannah. 
Every year she's painfully reminded. They're a faithful Israelite family. Just as God commanded, they would go up to Shiloh where the tabernacle was every year to make their sacrifices. Everyone in the family would get a portion of the sacrifice to eat. Penina and all her children would get a share and they would enjoy the feast together. But Hannah doesn't have any children to share with. But she still gets more than enough, verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Elkanah loves Hannah. He gives her extra. But this can't undo Hannah's pain. In fact, it just makes her family life harder. As favoritism always does, it stirs up conflict. Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her, and therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Hannah is alone in this. Penina is a piece of work adding to her sorrow with ruthless mockery. And Elkanah sees her pain, but he just doesn't get it. He thinks he should just be enough. But Hannah's pain is laid bare for us. Her sorrow is so much that she can't even bring herself to eat. The author of 1 Samuel, he zooms right in and he shows us Hannah's pain in slow motion. But why? Hebrew writing was known for brevity, for laying out the facts, for fast-paced action. Why zoom in on the sorrow of this ordinary woman? Well, to understand that, we actually need to understand a little bit of what 1 Samuel actually is. See, this is a history book. It's an account of the real history of Israel about 1,100 years before Jesus. But it's more than just a simple history. The author isn't just giving us a factual list of events. This is history with purpose, history that's meant to show us something. In fact, I think the best description of this book is theological history. It is history that is meant to show us who God is and how he's working in history to save his people. And so we see that here because twice in the eight verses that we've read so far, the author has told us that it's the Lord who's responsible for Hannah's situation. It's there in verse 6, it's the same words in verse 5 too. The Lord had closed her womb. The author of 1 Samuel is telling us, all is not as it should be in Israel. Remember about 400 years before Hannah, God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He made a covenant with them to be their God and to dwell with them. And they made a covenant with him to obey all his commands. But they didn't obey. They refused to go into the land of Israel that he was giving them. And so that generation died wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then when, when the people are finally ready to go into the land, Moses gives this great speech and he reminds them of their promises and he leads them in renewing their covenant with the Lord. 
if they obey God's commands, God will shower them with his blessings. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 28. It includes fruitfulness in bearing children. But if they don't obey, they will suffer the curse. They will suffer God's judgment, plagues and sickness, childlessness, defeat by their enemies, eventually an undoing of the exodus when they're carried off by their enemies into exile. Hannah's story is a clear sign that Israel is not doing well at obeying the Lord. In fact, that's a big problem we see here at the beginning of Samuel. In the original Hebrew scriptures, the book right before this is the book of Judges. And so the last verse of Judges, it sets a scene. Judges 21 verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel is far from obeying the Lord. There is no human king who can point them to the Lord as their true king, and so everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Now, if you read the last few chapters of Judges, it is horrific. And Hannah, even though she's part of a faithful Israelite family, is suffering under the curse for Israel's disobedience. Now, I want to make an aside here. I called Hannah's childlessness an ordinary problem, not because it's not important, but because it is sadly common. In Australia, it's estimated that one in six couples will struggle with not being able to have children. If you haven't experienced it yourself, chances are you know several couples who have. And that sorrow is awful. I read it described as the strange grief that has no focus for its tears and no object for its love. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that sorrow. It is an awful thing to long for children and not be able to have them. But I want to be very clear here. If you struggle with not being able to have children, I am not saying that God has cursed you in judgment for your sin. And I am not saying that God has cursed you for the sins of our nation. Hannah is part of God's chosen people under covenant with God in the land that he's given them. In her case, it's clear that she is suffering the judgment of the nation. But we aren't under that old covenant. In Jesus, we are under a new covenant. We still live in a fallen and broken world. We still experience the effects of sin in the brokenness of our bodies. But we can't draw a straight line between our suffering and God's punishment on us or our nation. Not for us. We'll come back to how to respond to that later, but I wanted to get that out of the way. But that is what the author of 1 Samuel wants us to see in Hannah's case. He zooms in to show us that she is crying under the curse. But there's a second thing he wants us to see. He wants us to see that through this ordinary grieving woman, God is about to act to save his people. And he does it through Hannah crying out to the Lord. Up to this point, Hannah's been pretty passive in our story. We've mostly heard about the things happening to Hannah and her response. But now she takes action. 
She takes matters into her own hands. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Hannah goes and cries out to the Lord. This is no sanitized, put on a brave face prayer. She goes before God's tabernacle, deeply distressed, and she prays and weeps. In her helplessness, she humbly cries out to the Lord. And in the midst of her heartfelt prayer, she makes a promise. Verse 11. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him, him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. Hannah's promise is that if God gives to her, she will give to him. If God gives her a son, she will give that son to the Lord to serve him. His head won't be shaved because that's a sign of a Nazarite, someone who's made a vow to serve the Lord. And if we needed any more proof that Israel is in a pretty bad way when it comes to following the Lord, in comes Eli, the chief priest. He sees Hannah pouring out her heart to God, praying quietly, and he thinks she's drunk. But she's not drunk. Verse 15. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. What a powerful description of prayer. This isn't sterile, sanitized prayer. This isn't religious-sounding words in a dispassionate, holier-than-thou sounding voice. This is Hannah pouring out her soul to the Lord. This is a weeping, snotty, sobbing prayer. This is crying out with all the sorrow and grief and anguish of her situation, crying out with all her anxiety and vexation to a God that she knows will hear her. This is like Israel groaning in their slavery in Egypt and God hearing them. This is what real prayer looks like. It looks like coming to the Lord in honesty, in our brokenness, and just pouring out our hearts to him. You don't need to make sure you've got the right words. You don't have to tone it down so God can handle it. Come to him in your grief, your fear, your anger, your confusion, your gut-wrenching sorrow. As a friend of mine put it recently, we have a God with broad shoulders who wants to hear those prayers. We can talk to him honestly about anything on our hearts. And that's what Hannah does. In her helplessness, she humbly cries out to the Lord. When Eli sees her mistake, he blesses her. Verse 17, then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Literally, Eli says, may God give you the asking that you have asked of him. Hannah has cried out to the Lord. And the priest who's meant to represent God to the people and people to God blesses her. 
And that's enough for her. She goes home, she eats, she's no longer sad. Not because she's guaranteed an answer, but because she's poured out her heart to God and she leaves with hope. And God graciously answers her cries of sorrow with cries of joy in the nursery. (laughs) Verse 20, verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The story changes. Hannah's sorrow is turned into joy. Her cries to the Lord are replaced with the cries of a precious newborn son. And again, the author wants us to see that God is acting here to save his people. It says that the Lord remembered Hannah. That doesn't mean that God had forgotten Hannah existed. She spoke to him and he's like, oh, that's right, I've forgotten about you. Here you go. No, it's not that at all. This is the language the Bible uses when God calls to mind his promises and acts on them to save his people. It's the same words at the end of Exodus 2 when God hears the groans of his people and he remembers his covenant with Abraham. God deliberately calls to mind his promises and he acts. In this case, he calls to mind Hannah's prayer and he acts to give her a child. But the author uses this language for a reason. He wants us to see that this is the beginning of God acting to save his people. Hannah names her son Samuel which sounds really close to the Hebrew word for ask. This is the son she asked for. God has answered her prayer. But will she keep her promise? Elkanah and his family go up to Shiloh for the usual sacrifice, but Hannah stays behind. She says he's not weaned yet. She's probably waiting until he's two or three, but is she putting it off? Is she going to keep her promise and give him back to the Lord? She does. She takes a child and a sacrifice, goes up to Shiloh to the tabernacle. She's excited to tell Eli what has happened, to give credit to God for what he's done, verse 26. And she said, oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshipped the Lord there. The Lord has answered her ask. He has given her a son. And now she gives him back to the Lord for as long as he lives. She keeps her promise. She proves faithful. And we're going to see next week, the Lord blesses her with more children. But there's something more she does. She cries out to the Lord again. She's no longer in anguish. This time she is crying out in praise. All of a sudden, one Samuel turns into a musical. And just as happens so often in the Bible, God's peoples respond to his mercy by singing his praises. Hannah's cries of sorrow are turned into a song of praise, verse 1, chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. 
here we need to pay very close attention because Hannah's song of praise shows us what to look out for in the whole rest of 1 and 2 Samuel. She starts by praising God for who he is. Her horn, an image of strength and power, is exalted and established in the Lord. Where before she was weak, now she's strong. And because she's strong, she derides her enemies. Penina has got nothing on her now. Hannah isn't crying before her mockery anymore. She is rejoicing in the Lord's salvation. The Lord saves those who humbly cry out to him. And there's no other like him, no other source of salvation, no other rock except our Lord. And just like in Hannah's case, the Lord is in the business of turning the world upside down, of humbling the proud and exalting those who humbly call on him. Verse 3, talk no more so very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. It's the Lord who does this. He is the one who makes the barren fruitful and the hungry full. He brings down the strong and exalts the weak. He is the one who has been acting from the beginning of Hannah's story to the end. Hannah lists off a stack more examples of where the Lord turns things on their head. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. The Lord doesn't reward the impressive, the powerful, the strong, the rich. He doesn't reward people based on how good they are. He rewards those who humbly cry out to him. It's the dead who cry out to him that he raises, the poor who call out to the Lord who are made rich. He gives honour to the humble and humbles the proud because it's not about how impressive someone is, it's about them crying out to the Lord and humbly relying on him. Verse 9 gives us the key, not just to understand Hannah's story, to understand the whole book. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. For those who are faithful, who trust in the Lord, who cry out to him in humble dependence, who seek to live in obedience to him, he will guard them. They are the ones who will prosper. But those who are wicked, who turn away from the Lord in rebellion, they will be cut off in darkness. They will face God's judgment. Why? The answer is there in that third line. Because it is not by might that a man will prevail. It is not about strength. It is not about power. It is not about riches. Success doesn't come from any of these things. Success comes from humbly crying out to the Lord and living in faithful obedience to him. Over the next 10 weeks, we're going to see two very different kings. We're going to see the great and powerful king, a man who stands head and shoulders above everyone else, a mighty man, a man who's brought low, dead on Mount Gilboa at the hands of his enemies at the end of the book. And we're going to see another king, 
the smallest and youngest, a humble shepherd, the one that no one else would pick, but who is exalted as a man after God's own heart. Because it is not about human strength, not about might. It is about crying out to the Lord in humble dependence and living in obedience to him. Hannah sets us up to understand everything that's going to happen. And now she lays it out in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Remember at this point there is no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. But Hannah promises that it's coming. Hannah, crying out to the Lord in her helplessness, is really crying out for a king. And God will provide. He will judge his enemies. And he will give strength to the king. To his king. Not the impressive, powerful man of strength, but the one who cries out to God in humble dependence. And this isn't just setting us up for 1 Samuel. This is setting us up for how God works. He doesn't reward the impressive, the proud, the strong, those who think that they can depend on themselves. In fact, that's been the problem since the very beginning. Since Adam and Eve decided to take the fruit for themselves to establish their independence rather than humbly depending on God. No, the Lord saves those who humbly cry out to him. Hannah, who cries out to God in her helplessness. David, the humble shepherd, who cries out in dependence on God to the ultimate king, Jesus, the son of God, humbled and born in a manger, not taking matters into his own hands, but humbly depending on God, crying out to the Lord for help in the garden. But the striking thing about the ultimate king, Jesus, is that he is not just the king who is established in strength, He is also the one who is cut off in darkness. The one who willingly faces the judgment of God that proud, self-reliant rebels like you and I deserve. At the cross, Jesus faces the judgment that sinners deserve so that we who humbly cry out to God for mercy can be forgiven, saved, restored. You see, Hannah's song doesn't just set the tone for Samuel. It's true for us. The Lord restores those who humbly cry out to him. That is our right response to our helplessness. So what do we do with all this? Well, first, this is actually the same message as Romans, right? Don't depend on your own righteousness, your own strength, your own works. When it comes to being right with God, you and I are helpless. All we can do is humbly cry out to God for mercy. But our God is gracious. And through his ultimate King Jesus, he saves those who cry out to him. Second, see what real prayer looks like. It's not using impressive, showy religious words with God. It's not coming to to God as those who are put together. It's pouring out our hearts to God coming to him whatever we're feeling and laying it before him. And he hears and saves those who humbly cry out to him. And lastly, I want to talk again to those who've struggled with childlessness. God invites you to come to him like Hannah. 
to pour out your heart to him, to give him your grief, your sorrow, your hurt, your anger. Pour out your soul to our Lord. He will hear. This passage is not a promise that he will answer your prayer in the same way that he did for Hannah. This is no guarantee that he will give you children. He might. But even if he doesn't, he hears your cries. He shows his mercy to you in Jesus. He brings you in as part of his forever family. And one day when Jesus returns to set all things right, those who are humbled and broken will be restored and everything sad will come untrue. What do you do when you are helpless? Humbly cry out to our Lord. Through our ultimate King Jesus, he saves those who cry out to him in humble dependence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you caused this story of Hannah, an ordinary woman struggling with ordinary problems, to be written in the Bible for us so that we might see not just your mercy and grace when we come to you, but so that we might see your plan to save your people through your King. In the midst of our hurt and brokenness, please help us run to you and pour out our souls and hearts to you. I do pray, Lord, that you would be with and comfort those who are struggling with childlessness and that you would comfort them in their grief. And I ask that you'd help all of us to humbly cry out to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.